what we're experiencing now as a collective society and also reflecting on how those experiences differ and vary when it comes to different racialized communities, people with different abilities, people with different income statuses, um, people who are newcomers. And it's the constant, so if you are looking for knowledge and if you're curious about it, you will find information to inform you of different perspectives. But that's something that I've been on this journey of doing for quite some time. When it comes to uh, COVID-19 and, and looking at the, at the statistics that came out of the U.S. pertaining to Black and Hispanics suggested that there is a higher risk of dying from COVID due to a number of underlying situations that are a reflection of the systemic inequities. Hey everyone, welcome to the Power of Why podcast. This is an interview style show that talks to leaders who are purpose-driven. I started to notice a pattern amongst folks who are fulfilled and lived in alignment. They walk different, they know why they spend time doing their work and they are fueled by impact. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 34 of the Power of Why podcast. My name is Naomi Hailey, and today I am joined by the incredible Sabrina Meharelli. Sabrina, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks Naomi. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for being here, Sabrina. I'm super excited to delve into this episode with you. I'm, I'm excited as well. So for some context uh, for the audience, Sabrina is a workplace inclusion consultant, speaker, and workshop facilitator. She is passionate about social change and racial equity and is committed to helping organizations create more inclusive workspaces using a design thinking approach. And her knowledge in these spaces in the workplace and in the world are informed by over 10 years of experience. So in today's social and political climate, Sabrina believes that organizations have the potential to be powerful stewards of social change, and her goal is really to equip organizations with the tools, knowledge, and approach to move along the diversity and inclusion continuum. And um, all of these combined, along with your energy and the message that you're sharing, really resonated with me in our, in our earliest conversation. So thank you again for being here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here with you. And um, Sabrina, I'd love for you to share a little bit more about yourself and your origin story and, you know, how you grew up and what came before you started working in this in this space. Yeah. So for as long as I can remember, I have been somebody who takes a stand against injustice in our world. And reflecting on where this passion and fire came from, I think back to a few different stories that have sort of um, been with me along this journey. The first uh, starts off as young as grade two, where I had changed schools and um, started off grade two as this innocent seven-year-old who experienced intense bullying for 10 years to come all because of how I looked and my physical appearance. Um, as somebody who was excluded and ostracized for a large portion of my childhood, I became incredibly aware of how it feels to be on the outside and how it feels to 
be excluded from participation through no fault of my own. And so I think that this awareness and deep um, personal experience has shaped the way that I see the world and the passion that I have around advocating for and supporting individuals who are unfairly and unjustly left behind in our society. So I feel like my experiences as a child who was bullied overlays a lot of the experiences to come in my life. And then as an adult, I entered the workforce. And I was somebody, I am somebody who is incredibly ambitious, loves to try new things, um, and is constantly learning. I had started a nonprofit in my early 20s, which I ran for two years with 12 volunteers. I had embarked, I was uh, on the board of directors at that young age. Um, I had worked in a number of different capacities and obtained so much diverse experience and had what I thought would be a really strong skill set and marketable asset for work opportunities. And I experienced certain barriers in the work environment that I couldn't quite grasp or understand. And for a long portion of my life, I actually attributed those challenges to myself. I thought I was doing something wrong. Um, And I I became incredibly hard on myself. Um, Some feedback that I was given in the corporate world was that I was too ambitious or too intense or too passionate. I needed to tone it down. Um, My ambition was off-putting. There was something about me that just bothered certain leaders and they couldn't quite put their finger on it. And as somebody who was, you know, uh, who was, who grew up thinking that being ambitious is something, um, that is marketable and that is um, a positive thing, I started to hear it being used as a negative. And then there was this light bulb that went off in my head, um, but it took some time to get there where I realized if I was a man, if I looked different, if I wasn't a person of color, if I didn't present as young as I did, would I be given the same feedback? And it was that moment that I think uh, illuminated for me that this wasn't a problem with myself. This was a problem to do with another individual's discomfort. But irregardless, their discomfort was barring me from opportunities that I felt that I was strongly qualified for. And so I used to believe growing up that if you work hard enough and um, if you just give it your all, you can get to and be whatever you want to be. And I realized as I entered the workplace that that wasn't always the case. No matter how hard I worked, no matter what I had learned or the skills that I had gained or my ability to contribute my passion, 
I still felt like there were some invisible barriers that I could not quite overcome. And I think understanding that and reflecting on on that experience as well put me in a position to want to change the system and advocate for not only the inequities that I was experiencing, but the inequities that others experience even more so to a greater degree. Yeah, and this experience, especially when you, you know, dial back to what it was like growing up, especially um, here in Canada, I think there are so many parallels, even in my story, that really resonates with what you just described. And I think even at that age, I've, I'm going to speak personally, I was, didn't really understand what was going on, right? And why I felt the way that I felt. I don't think I was really old enough to appreciate my culture and why it was so important to really understand my roots and read about, you know, my country of origin and all of these things. But I'd love to hear when that really shifted for you. Was it as you started to delve into the diversity, equity and inclusion space? Was it in high school? Was it in university? What do you think were some of the most pivotal moments and experiences for you that um, really opened your eyes to Sabrina and, and your culture and your heritage? Yeah, so I would say that the most, um, probably the point in my life where I started to really realize um, about the, or or become aware of the injustices that were um, faced by marginalized communities and identify as a person of color myself, was when I started to um, read more about and surround myself more with people who were um, individuals of color like myself. And, um, and I think a large part of my story has to do with the fact that um, for, a lo- for quite a bit of time in my life, I wasn't around and intentionally wasn't around people who, were, who looked like me. And when I started to, I started to like engage in conversations about experiences that others were having. And I reflected and thought, oh, well, yeah, I have those experiences too. But I thought that was normal. I thought this was just the way life was. I didn't realize, you know, I didn't, it didn't occur to me that this was a form of discrimination or that other people weren't experiencing these things. And and then when I started to realize or put myself in, you know, in another person's shoes, perhaps somebody with more privilege and and uh, recognize that, oh, yeah, we don't say these things to um, white people or we don't um, say these things to men. It made me a lot more aware of the um, the injustices that exist and in the inequities that exist. Why are some people treated this way and other people aren't? And um, I think that illuminated it for me was being around people who were who were similar to me, um, and and that started around high school. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that that term privilege, and I think often in your work you talk about this continuum of privilege and marginality. And that depending on the spaces and the environments, whether you're at work or, you know, at a networking event or whatever space that you find yourself in, 
that we do in fact hold varying degrees or a level of privilege and marginality. Can Mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about this continuum? And ultimately, I'd really love to lead into what's happening with COVID right now, COVID-19. So today it's April the 12th. Um, So I think we're about four weeks into being socially or physically uh, distant at this point. So can you talk a little bit about that continuum and then lead us into how you're seeing it play out in the current environment and our current ecosystem? Yeah. So what I would start off saying is that I'm somebody who who genuinely believes in the power of advocacy and allyship. And I believe that if each of us applied an open mindset, the ability to listen, empathize, and understand with the lived experiences of each other, and if we acted upon it, in service and in support of one another, that collectively as a society, we would thrive. And, you know, you see this example in the workplace. You know, there's numerous studies that suggest that if you have a diverse workplace and an inclusive workplace where people are leveraged to their fullest potential, where everybody has the same opportunities to success that you will see those results show in your bottom line. And I believe the same for our societies. So I think that it's really important when we're looking at uh, at our society to be able to understand and empathize and spend time in the shoes of other individuals. Um, as somebody who's been committed to this journey around social justice and continuous learning in the space of diversity and inclusion, I'm constantly trying to educate myself of the perspectives and experiences of people who are not like me. And so when we talk about privilege and we talk about, you know, the the, the continuum, I don't know if I would say it's necessarily a continuum. Um, what I would say is that we have, we each have a blend of privilege and marginality to some degree. Um, privilege is not only about race. It's not only about class. It's not only about ability. It's, um, you know, it's very intersectional. And it's really important for us to have a, a clear picture of where we stand as an individual, who we are as in, in our entirety. Um, so for example, I am a woman. I'm a person of color. I am an Asian woman of color, which means that while I carry some degree of marginality, I also carry privilege as it relates to Black or Indigenous folks. I recognize that I'm also an able-bodied individual. I do not have uh, to think about challenges when it comes to um, you know, access on a digital platform or in a physical space in the same way that somebody with a disability would have to. I'm straight. And so I don't have to worry about holding the hand of my partner in public and what other people might might say or think. It's, it's really important for us as individuals to be able to reflect on all of these facets of our privilege and our marginality to understand how we are experiencing the world relative to other people. And of course, again, in certain settings, that will also change. So I think that um, 
it, it it's really important for us to pay attention to certain um, spaces in which we may have more privilege and certain spaces where we might be more marginalized. And just being able to pay attention to um, those those particular spaces and look at everything very objectively is a skill that I believe if we all refined, um, we would see a tremendous change in our society. And when did this become really clear for you? Is there like a stark experience that you had where you're like, wow, um, this just opened my eyes and it made me a little bit more aware of how my experience can differ depending on where I am and who I'm surrounded by? I would say that it hasn't been a specific stark experience for me. It has been a constant journey of, of learning. So um, I'll give you the example that's relative to what you, you had asked about when it comes to COVID and what we're experiencing now as a collective society and also reflecting on how those experiences differ and vary when it comes to um different racialized communities, people with different abilities, people with different income statuses, um, people who are newcomers. And it's the constant, so if you are looking for knowledge and if you're curious about it, you will find information to um, inform you of different perspectives. And so that's something that I've been on this journey of doing for quite some time. Um, when it comes to uh, COVID-19 and, and looking at the, at the statistics around um, uh, that came out of the U.S. pertaining to Black and Hispanics suggested that there is a higher risk of dying from COVID due to um, a number of underlying situations that are a reflection of the systemic inequities. Mm-hmm. Um, so that being, uh, you know, the, the type of jobs that individuals work, um, the precarious nature of them, the, um, the low income, the health related, um, uh, complications, um, housing, uh, the inability to stay home from work. There's a number of factors that contribute to why certain communities will be impacted more than other communities. And it's in, it's incredibly important for us not to turn a blind eye to that. So both you and I, Naomi, are from Canada. And it's, it's alarming that here in Canada, we don't actually track data as it relates to this pandemic. Um, we have no racial data to speak to the inequities. There's just suspicion around it. And um, typically, we can say that diseases fall into this pattern of money and power. The rich and the powerful are the ones who are more likely to recover or not get the disease, whereas the the ones who are lower income, the ones who work precarious roles, the ones who are less in spaces of power are the ones who will most likely contract and die from it. So um, I think it's important to bring that perspective and where we go back to this piece around um, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes or doing this research to understand it is um, when I was looking up the impacts of COVID, I was writing on Google, you know, how does COVID-19 impact individuals with disabilities? 
how does COVID-19 impact the Indigenous people? What are Indigenous communities worried about? And I think as we Google that stuff, as we expose ourselves to opportunities to ingest more knowledge, the more aware we become as individuals and the more we can do to advocate for, take a stand for, and action on um, these situations. I think that was really well said, Sabrina. And um, do you have any more comments as it relates to how specific industries are being impacted. I know you had some, you know, thought pieces that you shared on LinkedIn around the tourism industry. So I'd love for you to speak about, you know, the research that you've done and what you found in that in that regard. Yeah. So what I'll say is that, um, you know, I have quite a bit of friends that live out in Tanzania, and I know this is just as uh, one part of the world and not a, um, and it and this is being experienced by other parts of the world as well. But what I will say is that when people are talking about the travel industry or um, the tourism uh, space being negatively impacted at this time, they're often referring to airlines and hotels and um, and a lot of people complaining about the fact that they're not going to be able to take their next vacation. And while that may be true, I think it's really important for us to bring perspective to what does a um, an impacted travel tourist industry um, what does the it, what is the impact on other parts of the world if you look at the GDP in Canada and in the US as it relates to the tourism industry it's somewhere between two to three percent but in other parts of the world like Tanzania the GDP um, is 17 percent of the GDP is from tourism there are places in the world that are incredibly economically dependent on the tourist industry. Um, so much that entire communities are, their, their primary source of income come from individuals traveling to those spaces and buying souvenirs off the street or getting clothes made or um, going to these certain restaurants, um, taking safaris, um, going on these mini tours, uh, participating at different NGOs. Like it's, it's just important for us, I think, to be reflective of what our experiences might be as it relates to the tourism industry and what and how that might be impacting other parts of the world. But even in our own backyards, if you look at um, the indigenous populations that live up north, many of those spaces are incredibly reliant on air transportation to be able to receive perishable goods and services. And so what happens to those services when um, the airline industry is down? Or how are these goods being transported? Are they being transported um, and delivered in the same frequency? And I think just ha being able to ask these questions and reflect on, on this is really important for us. Yes, and I think it was really helpful for you to explain what your research process is and what those prompts are that you're, you know, actually searching by. Because I think, um, you know, oftentimes some excuses that I'll hear is, you know, I don't really know where to look and I don't know where to start. And I think these are... Uh, mainly excuses at that. But I think we have access to these, you know, really powerful sources of data to go in and dig and, and find, you know, 
answers or find data points that you can refer to so we can educate ourselves. I think that's really big. Um, you know, in you mentioned this the data points that are coming out of the United States. And I think it's um I think it's really fascinating to see how seeing as though it's an international issue right now, how different governments are really coming to the table and and how they are taking action, right, to protect citizens. Mm-hmm. And in in places where it might, you know, the infrastructure is not necessarily in place or the government is really failing people at this time. I know in the U.S. I've heard a lot of uh, many stories from people that I know there where they don't necessarily have the financing to pay their rent and, and buy food. And then in Canada, we just came out with the benefit, the CERB, the emergency response benefit for individuals who you know have lost their jobs as it relates to COVID. And so can you speak to maybe the, the importance and the, and the power of community in these times as well? And what we can do to really rally together when maybe other forms of support aren't aren't there or failing us at this time. Yeah, I think you know, I have I have to say that I have been impressed by the way that community has come together in some form to provide services and support to let's say the elderly or um you know, families that are um Uh, individuals that are unable to leave their homes due to uh, being immunocompromised, etc. What I think is really important is to be aware of the intersectional aspects of this. So there will be, for example, um, newcomer families that um, maybe are dealing with or experiencing uh, challenges around elderly care or around uh, you know, having to watch their kids at, at home and all of these other aspects, but it's layered on top of other pieces. Like, for instance, maybe it's the fact that um, somebody has a degree but is unable to practice in our country, or it's um, a language barrier um, and not really able to ask for the help that they need because they're not able to communicate as effectively as somebody who um, is is uh, has English as their first language. So there's so many aspects to it that I think we need to be aware of the intersectional um, pieces to that, to think about how are we helping all communities? How are we servicing, um, and particularly, how are we servicing marginalized communities that will be disproportionately impacted um, during this pandemic? And not just sort of blanketing it over in um, elderly care Mm -hmm. and without, without the lens of intersectionality, without the awareness of the fact that, yes, there are elders, but then there are different types of elders. There are elderly people who are um, entirely dependent on caregivers. Um, there are elderly people who have language barriers. There are elderly people who have disabilities. There are, you know, so just being aware of the, those pieces helps us understand which populations may need more support and to have a more concentrated effort in that space. Mm-hmm. So drill down right? Drill down, get into the finer details of things. Can you share some 
maybe some empowering stories that you've come across during this time, stories of people really being compassionate to others and how important empathy really is during this time. I've seen a lot of community groups um, post on social media and on Facebook, um, you know, uh, these um, and, and I've seen a lot of companies take stands to collaborate and work together to offer sub- services and supports to various members of the community, to our healthcare workers, um, those on the front line. And, and that's been really inspiring to me. Um, at the same time, as I just say these words to you and I talk about how I've seen a lot of these Facebook groups pop up, um, community groups form on the internet, I realized that one of the biggest um, privileges is the access to internet and our ability to actually log on, have data, and find the supports and the services that we need. And then there's communities that are severely impacted by the digital divide. Um, And I would say Indigenous populations disproportionately so. People who do not have access to computers or data. um, And then others who do have access but don't know how to leverage the technology in a way to get the supports that they need. So again, another reflection on privilege um, and and um, perhaps something that we don't often think about. Mm-hmm. And for you, Sabrina, I know that you are currently working remotely. Can you talk a little bit about how your world in DEI, so diversity, equity, and inclusion, has been impacted? What are some of the uh, things that you've been really focused on for anyone who's really interested in that space or um, looking to learn more about how they can really be change agents during this time? How has your work really changed? I'm curious. Well, I think right now, organizations have a real opportunity to demonstrate their values to their employees and to the community. We are in unprecedented times right now, and many of us have not experienced anything like what we're seeing. I think that this is a first for organizations, and it provides an opportunity to really be thoughtful around the way that they approach this this um, situation. We're we're seeing such high levels of unemployment. We're seeing um, a tremendous amount of individuals being let go. Yeah. And what I think is really important is to think about, are there alternative options? Are there other ways that organizations can support and rally around their people? I know that there are many industries that are suffering so, so much that layoffs or furloughing their employees is the only choice that they have. Um, But I think if we think about um, alternatives for other industries, I can say for the one that I'm in, we're looking at the way that we might be able to repurpose talent, um, collecting a skills database and understanding that individuals are people who are not only their particular role, but they have skills in a number of different areas. How can we use those skills 
um, in another capacity. Do we have to let go of these people or can we use them to um, support in another space? And so repurposing talent is an alternative option if it's possible to do that. Looking at rewarding and recognizing our frontline workers, um, it's interesting because as we're going through this pandemic, I think it's become incredibly clear that the heroes and the people that we rely on are the people who are paid the, the lowest of wages in many cases. The places that are called essential services, yeah, right? It's the places that are called essential services that we are going to every day, the, the grocery stores or the um, the the people who are making food at the restaurants, our postal workers, our warehouse workers, our farmers, our, you know, production facilities, all of these people are people who we are incredibly dependent on. And yet, if we look at the wages that these people who we are so dependent on make, it's such a contrast, right? It doesn't make sense. Why are they paid so low? And so I think as an or, as organizations, again, there's this opportunity to reflect not just for these times during this pandemic, but to reflect for the future as to how do we want to treat the people that we so um, very much depend on. And so um, looking at wages, looking at benefits, looking at um, different ways to repurpose talent in an organization are just a couple of ways. I mean, obviously, there's um, people working from home, uh, but also recognizing that when you are working from home, many families are having to balance child care and work at the same time. Productivity levels will be impacted as a result. So how can organizations support families that are dealing with having to juggle multiple priorities that they otherwise wouldn't have had to uh, had to juggle if this uh, virus wasn't uh, a thing right now. So um, all of this having perspective, and again, it's really all about being able to put yourself in different individual shoes and being able to think about different identities. How might they be experiencing things right now. Um, I know that there, there's some statistics that have come out to say that individuals with disabilities are experiencing greater levels of social isolation at this time. Um, in certain workplaces, you see where places where um, people with disabilities may be working, there may be adaptive or assistive technologies to support um, them at work. But are those technologies available at home? If they're not available at home, then what are these people able to do at home? And how are they able to feel like they're still contributing to the workplace or to our economy? And it's really important for us to have that lens of uh, curiosity and to um, to remember that there are people who are different from us that are experiencing this pandemic in different ways. I think those are all fantastic points, Sabrina. In that, you mentioned repurposing talent. Um, can we spend a little bit of time here uh, around maybe some of the infrastructure that's really helpful to, to have in place and, and, and build during the good times so that when situations like this happen, I know it was very unexpected, that it might be, you know, more helpful 
to um, think about how we can really empower our talent to work in different areas during this time. Yeah, so I'm really glad that you asked that. I think it's important for us to reflect on what the future of work will look like and understand that skills are going to be, it's going to be required that we continually update and grow our skill set in the future, for the future. And as part of that, we need to understand that there are going to be certain jobs that will be replaced by technology. And then there will be a whole new set of jobs that will be created by technology. And then there will be jobs that will be modified because of technology. And so we're going to need a workforce that is agile, that is adaptable, that is in the space of continuous learning. And we're going to need leaders to understand that humans and people are full of potential and capability and that they are not just the role that they're currently working on. And so part of that means understanding your talent for who they are as individuals, what they care about, what the skills are that they have, what they want to learn, um, and being able to look to provide those learning opportunities for them, being able to track and record the skills and the talents that they currently have, and then thinking about how can we, if needed, or even if not needed, how can we repurpose these individuals or give them opportunities to work in different spaces? Um, I myself have been um, have worked in a number of different uh, different roles. I've worked in HR for a significant portion of my life, but then I've also worked in user experience design. I've worked as a product manager. I worked in digital strategy. I've worked as a diversity and inclusion consultant. And being able to work in these different roles has provided me with an immense amount of um, knowledge as it relates to what these functions do and and, and, oppor- and opportunities that exist to take certain learnings from one area and apply them to another area. It just gives you a lot more perspective and understanding. And I think it only makes us better at our jobs. So I think organizations have this opportunity starting now and looking into the future to think about how they can um, understand the different skills and capabilities that their that their teams and uh, colleagues have and think about creative ways to leverage um, those skills and continue to grow them. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And if we can go back to talking a little bit about COVID before my remaining questions about, you know, some of the gaps that you've noticed within organizations, I'm curious, like, what do you think about some of the racial impacts that are that are happening right now as it relates to COVID-19 and, and some of the research that you've delved into? Yeah, so, you know, as I was looking at some of the Canadian data as it relates to Indigenous communities and it relates to Black communities, um, it was really illuminating to find out that during the H1N1 pandemic, uh, firstly, it's important to say that Indigenous people make up about 4% of our population. But during the indig- uh, during the H1N1 pandemic, Indigenous people actually represented about 28% of hospital admissions and 18% of deaths in Canada, which is 
very significant. And so again, it speaks to the importance of us being able to collect this data for what's happening now during COVID-19 to be able to understand the disproportionate impacts, the inequities that exist. And, and once we understand that, it gives us an opportunity to actually do something about that as well. Indigenous women, they represent about 42% of the federal prison population. And we've been hearing a lot about the possibilities of prisons being impacted by this virus. And it will spread like wildfire once it does. So think about the disproportionate impacts that the coronavirus will have on racialized people if um, the virus gets into the prison system. Um, when it comes to Black communities, you know, thinking about um, the fact that, firstly, we don't have racial data in Canada, and it leaves us blind to a lot of these inequities. But if we reflect on um, the fact that uh, many Canadians of African descent um, are uh, working in roles that are frontline work, um, that do not have the ability to stay home, that are living in overcrowded housing, that have underlying health conditions, we'll see that um, there is a, a very good chance that COVID-19 will disproportionately impact Black communities as it will Indigenous communities. Yeah, this is just troubling on all fronts. And I think with you know, some of the information and data that you shared. One thing that I want to highlight as really important is simply to educate yourself on what's happening. Because I've been seeing a lot of very, not to call anyone out, but I've been seeing a lot of very <laughs> in-depth posts on different platforms around, I'm doing great. And you know what, the situation is actually not that bad. And um, I think that's just an example, an illustration of what it's like living in a bubble, <laughs> quite frankly, and how important it is. I think, you know, the situation is really exposing a lot of what was the issues that are already ingrained and are systemic in our society, in the workplace, um, in the world. It's exposing a lot of these issues, right? So I think there is a lot of uh, work that we need to do as a community to make sure that that we're taking care of our people right so thank you for for sharing a lot of that it's very timely and i, and I think very important information and uh before we dive into one of the last questions on the power of why i'd love for you to touch on some of the gaps that you really notice but also uh, from your perspective, what does building an inclusive community look like? And I know there there is no one answer for this, but I'm curious to see um, in your experience in the workplace what what that means to you, building inclusive communities and making sure that not only are we all invited to the table, but that we're building our own very intentional tables where our voices can be heard. Yeah, so I think you you said exactly it. You know, it's the ability to it what it what an inclusive community looks like is one where not only everyone has a seat at the table, but where the voices of each individual are heard, respected, and valued and acted upon. And I think that 
Um, part of that means that we see individuals um, of marginalized backgrounds, of underrepresented communities in seats of power. Um, it means that we put a concentrated effort on communities that are experiencing uh, greater levels of inequity and look to improve those conditions um, specifically. It means that we're bringing a thoughtful lens into the way that we're creating and designing for the future. And this is something that I'm really passionate about is inclusive design. Looking at how, you know, traditionally inclusion and diversity have been an afterthought. They've been something that we, we tack on at the end and say, oh, okay, now that we have this solution, how can we fit people with disabilities or how can we fit this community into it? Yeah. And I think that's, that's the wrong way to go about in, in uh, innovation and design. I think we need to be bringing those voices of underrepresented communities to the forefront, because if we're able to design for our most marginalized person, then we're able to design for everyone. So it's really reframing and looking at how do we how do we create solutions that everyone can use, where everyone can participate? Because what I'm worried about is that as technology accelerates and we see rapid change in our society, we have already existing communities that are uh, challenged with keeping up with the times. But as technology starts to boom and change and more and more innovations keep, um, you know, continue to grow, I worry that that divide between the haves and have nots will only um, expand when we have this real opportunity to try and shrink it or bridge it. And so the, the way that we go about that, in my opinion, is by amplifying the voices of those underserved communities, by bringing a lens to their lived experiences, and by um, engaging with them and, and working to create solutions that are equitable and that advance those communities so that everyone can participate. Incredible. Thank you so much, Sabrina. I, I, I deeply appreciate you um, sharing these insights and how we can be more inclusive and thoughtful during these times, but also how we can take these practices after this has this has passed. So a question that I always ask on the Power of Why podcast is, is what is your why? And you touched upon it in, in a lot of your answers, but I'd love for you to tell us, you know, when things are not necessarily going your way and you're tired and maybe on the brink of giving up on your mission, what is the reason that you keep on going and persisting? And I want you to be specific. Mm-hmm. I would say that I am, my why is deeply connected to my own state of privilege. I'm a very self-reflective individual and I'm constantly thinking about my experiences and why I am where I am in my life how I got there and bringing this constant mindset of gratitude for the things that I have and reflecting on the fact that there are others in this world who do not have those privileges or those advantages. I know that I am a minority. 
I know that I am, I experience marginality in my life and I want to advocate for those changes. I face barriers when it comes to uh, being in society or being in the workplace. But I recognize as well the perspective that I also face advantage, that I also have advantage. And that keeps me humble and that keeps me in the position of wanting to give back and use my privilege and use my voice to advocate for other individuals who do not have those opportunities. So, yeah, I don't know. Does that answer your question? 100%. Thank you. I can't thank you enough for being here. And uh, I want to thank everyone in the audience as well who took the time to listen. And thank you so much for sharing these opportunities for us to, to be more thoughtful and intentional through our work and through our everyday life.